Hello and welcome to Bend the Knee, a Song of Ice and Fire podcast. I am Sir Matt, the Butt Knight. And I am Jimmy of House Nuts. Wow, guys, so much content <laughs> to talk about, man. You know, we thought we were just going to come on here, had a great run through season one of House of the Dragon. All you guys, uh, so much fun doing our live hangouts on YouTube, and those will continue. We will definitely be doing more of those. But uh, just today, man, there's just so much stuff to talk about, not only in A Song of Ice and Fire, but we're going to touch a little bit about some other things happening in the fantasy realm because i don't know jimmy and i want to talk about it so we're gonna we're gonna dive into that first or into that as well i should say so with all of that stuff let's go ahead and start jimmy there was a huge update uh from george martin talking about the winds of winter uh i don't know exactly where he was at but i just i saw the clip and it's been moved around youtube where he said that Winds of Winter is roughly about 75% done and that he thinks he could have it finished in a winter or two. Yeah, um, a lot of people were shocked to hear that because we've been, me and you have been pretty optimistic uh, in as as well back in the day that, you know, things were getting done, that, that there was progress being made. I think everyone can kind of accept the fact that he probably did a large amount of rewrites at some point in the last 12 years. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But this was the first time we've heard a, a real percentage right from his mouth. And even if it is more like, let's say it's 60%, not 75, that's still way further along than a lot of the more uh, pessimistic people would say. Um, but I feel as if this is the home stretch. And we and you kind of said that whenever we started putting together how many POV chapters he's actually talked about finishing. Me and you both yes. were like, this sounds like it's about three-fourths of the way. I think that's exactly what you and I had said. So this is... Uh, some of the best news I've heard. I, I did see some people take it as a bad thing. You know, that means four more years, but that's not how art works. Um, art and the motivation that to do it and all that comes in spurts. And I feel like uh, Gurm is having a great year. Uh, oh, between Giants football, House of the Dragon and, you know, Elden Ring. I mean, he's just having a bang up year. And it really does seem even whenever he's talking um, that he's a little bit more into it than he has been. Yeah. Um, there are times where it feels like he might be dead inside whenever someone asks him about the wins of what he's like, it's the same update as always. Um, I'm writing it. You know, he, he, you can tell he just hates the questions. Um, but this progress, man, and it's super encouraging. And I've always said November, 2024, we said it last time we were on the podcast and I'm sticking to it. I think it might be. Might be I think I'm starting to think you might be right, man. Um, you know, so he was on the late night. He was on the uh, Stephen Colbert. I think th wasn't there another interview as well? It wasn't Colbert, but it was somebody else that he he's he done quite this, a few, yeah, right for the House of the Dragon. But um, I think it's gonna be a very big book, more than fifteen hundred pages, and I'm about three quarters of the way done. The characters all interweave, and I'm actually finished with a couple of characters, but not others. I have to finish all that weaving. Uh, Colbert joke that, it, you know, it took 10 years to finish 75%. It means, you know, yeah, at that rate, right? What's 75% of, you know, 10, whatever. It'll take you three years to finish, uh, which Martin, <laughs> you know, joked as depressing. Um, so, <laughs> right, you know, but it was, I did, I did, I, I did see, you know, I did, I did see a little bit of that interview. It was kind of funny. They did talk a little bit about Elden Ring as well. And he sort of said, man, you know, it's like they hit me up a couple of years ago, actually. It's kind of crazy mm -hmm. to think about like, just what that, what that is yeah man. that progression um 
And man, we also just got, I mean, he's got so much stuff going on. We just got this, right? The Rise of the Dragon book. I mean, so much stuff. We can dive, we'll dive into that here in a second, too. But, Some amazing um, art in that book. So the, the new oh, art that it was put out is really incredible. There's a new shot of the Iron Throne that I think is the best one ever. Yeah. Really exciting stuff. Yeah. So just it's super, super cool. And yeah, you know, we did, we have a video where we did a huge breakdown of like every chapter that's ever been written. You know, some of those chapters from A Feast for Crows got pushed forward into A Dance of Dragons. And then some of the stuff that was going to be in Dance of Dragons, he's, he wanted to get in there. He couldn't, and it's going to get automatically put into Winds of Winter. So, excuse me, does feel like we are pretty, you know, close. He said he's 75%, which is still better than for years the sort of woe is me i'll never get it done you can blame me whatever you want yeah and also the fact that like we were not sure if he was writing at some points right uh he even mentioned in the interview that he had went back and some chapters he had finished he went back and rewrote them because they weren't good enough which makes me happy because if he wanted to get it out he could get this book out Right. But he's still taking his time and and working his way through it. The one thing, Matt, that I thought was really interesting is that he said it's going to be bigger than Dance of Dragons and A Storm of Swords. And then he also mentioned what happens when I hand over a 15, 1700 page manuscript to the publisher, whether they're going to want to split it or do something else with it, because there are binding limitations, especially nowadays. Uh, Brandon Sanderson's been po- uh, publishing some like 1300 page chonkers. So I would hope that they, after editing, you know, maybe it'd be around there so they'd be able to publish it. But I also wouldn't be surprised if we saw something that happened to actually one of George's favorite writers, Tad Williams. He was finishing up a fantasy series and he was releasing the third book of a trilogy and they had to split it. And they said, we're going to release this one now. And then in like six months to 12 months, we'll release the next one. So I'm very curious if Winds of Winter is going to be split it wouldn't be a dance of dragons feast for crow situation. I don't think, I think it would probably be right. more likely to be because now that the, the POVs are intertwining whereas feast and dance, they were very far apart. I think that you could probably find like a midway point and cut the book, uh, which is definitely not the case whenever you look at feast and dance and the way that they're kind of written. So very curious if something that we've speculated for a long time. Now we've said that it's going to be more than seven books. We might be seeing, books uh six and seven just out of winds of winter that could happen right and it is important to remember too i know on the european versions yes they are split they're split some of the books are split and it's like because i remember the first time we received an email and someone was like yeah i'm in volume two of like the storm of swords and i was like what what are you talking about (laughs) and it is it's a thing it's a it's a it's a thing over there yeah one of my good friends, uh, AP from Ireland, he uh, he actually told me, he's like, yeah, I found Storm of Swords to be very boring. And I was like, wait, what? And then I found out that he had only read the first part. He had not actually finished the second part. So he never got to Red Wedding or any of the goodness oh, that we yeah. know. So and that, and I was like bewildered by it. I was like, wait, what do you mean it was boring? Like, it's the best fantasy book ever written, in my opinion. And uh, it turns out that, you know, obviously they split stuff more so in europe than they do in america so uh yeah i don't know i don't know how to feel about that i'm a pretty big um you know i'm a supporter of letting the artist give us the story and the art in the form that they wanted to put it in i don't like publishing restrictions but if the book even after editing is 1500 pages i mean there's a very large chance that they'll have to split it so yeah and i'd be fine with it i think it could work well and then you could actually 
who knows you could even th- add in an extra chapter or something because if you're like okay well now that this one's gonna be done i can go back in and we talked about i think he should have split it in in the first place because at least mm-hmm. then you'll have published something and yeah. then maybe that changes your frame of mind to go back and think okay well now i'm i'm done there yeah because you, you never know you may well maybe i need to go back and change something i've already written Right. So then but then you just keep working and working and working and working and you'll never get anywhere. But at least once you publish it, it's out there. You it's hard to go back and say, "Uh, well, I want to retcon that or change that. And that is very true. One of the reasons why I think maybe this hasn't happened prior is one, George is probably stubborn. But two, this comes actually from publishing. And I, I, I learned this from interviewing authors over on my YouTube channel, but Publishers really prefer, especially in fantasy, for books to be as thick with three C's as possible because they want to make sure that the customer is feeling they're getting money, their money's worth out of the book. And they've they've done studies. People are more likely to pick up a bigger book, even if they don't have intentions of finishing it ever, than to pick up a small book, especially in the fantasy genre. So I do wonder sometimes if maybe George is like, could I split this up more? And the publisher's like, absolutely not. Like we need it to be a yeah. doorstop, you know? Yeah, I know. It's just, it's just wild though. I mean, do you think a publisher would really push back? Cause it'd be one thing if it was like, <laughs> if it was an up and comer. Yeah. Right, right. 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 Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one thing. And I know you've interviewed like Steven Erickson who did Malazan and you mm-hmm. were doing another, who are you interviewing today? I'm Jenny Wartz who did the wars of light and shadow back in the nineties. And she's actually wrapping up an 11 book series this year, which is crazy. I've also interviewed Christopher Rocchio, who uh, is writing the Sun Eater series. Right. Um, and no offense to any of them. I mean, they're all great authors, but, you know, I, they don't have a the single biggest hit on television show. Yeah, certainly. He, he has a lot more pull than. Right. Th- yeah. There was um, there was something in that in that interview that kind of shocked me. And I, and I don't know if you picked up on this, but he actually said that he was working on the winds of winter. And whenever they figured out that they wanted to do House of the Dragon, which is a couple of years ago, like way before we ever knew about it, um, Penguin Random House pushed him to work on Fire and Blood. They said, you need to finish this book before you work on yeah. Winds of Winter. So they do have some leverage over him yeah. from contracts and such. But you're 100% correct. Like George is probably he like push- a large percentage <clears throat> of Penguin Random House. It's like Patrick Rothfuss and DAW books. Like Patrick Rothfuss, uh, like, definitely you know up keeps up keeps them uh just based on sales of name of the wind so uh i would assume that if he wanted to split his books he could have them split so yeah yeah absolutely so okay well hey speaking of books uh we'll just briefly talk about this and this is the rise of the dragon book um Mm -hmm. pre-ordered this way back in the day it's from the same people who did the world of ice and fire book which i uh, talk about a lot because it's like my favorite i absolutely love it and it's done this done the same way. It's basically just a, another version of Fire and Blood, which contains a lot of the same text we've had from years from all sorts of different things like the novellas, which then got into World of Ice and Fire. So a lot of the content, in all honesty, is the same. There is no difference. Yeah, there's no new just, words. <laughs> there's no new words. However, I just prefer this um, over Fire and Blood, especially because to me, I've said it for years I, uh, since it's come out, really. I just don't. And I'm a historian. I have a history major. I read history books, right? I went to college to read and teach history. And I think Fire and Blood is boring as all get out. It's not that the con, like, it's not that the 
content of what is happening isn't cool or awesome because we're seeing it in a medium where it's absolutely amazing in House of the Dragon. Mm-hmm. I just find the book to be kind of boring. And I actually can't imagine how casual fans find it entertaining. To be honest, I'm dead. I'm just dead serious. It's just because it's it's sort of this dry history where you have two competing. It's a weird book. It's just weird. I really love it. Um, but I understand that that a lot of people bounce off of it um, as a as a narrative. It's such a ballsy way of doing it. Yeah, um, I, I personally love it, um, but that's just me. And I'm also just like obsessed. Right. But we're like lore heavy people. So, yeah, the, yeah. the artwork in this thing is just it's Incredible. so absolutely fantastic. Really, my only criticism of this book, I really mm-hmm. only have, other than that, I absolutely love it. And you and I, you had said it because you got yours earlier in the day. Um, again, just the artwork in this thing is just, it's so good. It is a bigger book because um, it's meant to be like a tabletop book. Yep. But you and I think, I are both on sort of the same page that our only criticism of it is the material that they use on the cover, which is yep. a normal, hard material it's fine like it's it's a very good it's got this sort of gloss and shine to it however the world of ice and fire which this book is you know designed to be like the almost companion piece to has this sort of like padding to it yeah it actually has a material really loved yeah my problem my problem is is that the books cost the same amount of money so why Rise of the Dragon should have had that. And I also well, thought the binding on there's mine an, was there's inflation, loose. man. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair this, enough. This came this came out a long time ago. Man. Yeah, that's but, true. That's yeah, true. it's just the the cover on this, it just has this sort of padding to it. It's just so cool. Honestly, I don't even know of any other book I've picked up that has this. I'm a I'm a book collector. Like I have some right, rare have items. An, an insane and, amount of books behind you. And the world of ice and fire is still one of my favorite books I own. Um just a tremendously put together book. The binding is strong on it. Uh, yeah. The Rise of the Dragons binding. I'm a little suspect about. I was flipping through it, and I I get a feel for books. Like I can tell when yeah. they're not going to hold up as much. And I was a little nervous flipping through Rise of the Dragons. But I'll but, say this is this is it's it's fantastic. And we are supposed to get Fire and Blood two at some point, which means hopefully we will get another version of this, which I think would then go up to, um, uh, to the to Robert's rebellion and yeah. perhaps danny danny even um which really means it'll just be a thicker version of this because that's what this book does <laughs> so yeah. it's just like george just keeps reselling the same product over and over again and we just keep buying it so, yeah just give us wins kudos. part one man come on <laughs> kudos uh kudos to that i mean they should do a big version of, of once he finishes he should just do a big version of this with like illustrated for like game of thrones and stuff like that could you imagine yeah. Well, also, God, you know, those... those Harry Potter tabletop books that they released. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you imagine the books being released in those? I mean, that'd be really cool. Yeah. The graphic novels. I have um, some of the Dunkin' Egg ones. Those are sweet. And I've looked at the Game of Thrones ones. Those are uh, really, really nice as well. So there's a lot of different versions of 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 these books and even Fire and Blood. One of the one thing I will give Fire and Blood is that the illustrations in it, the black and white illustrations are fantastic but they do have those in some of the newer prints of game of thrones yeah and the main series i should say so also we talk about rise of the dragons but folio society which releases collector's editions of books they're numbered and all this other stuff uh some of them are even signed uh i picked up a dance with dragons i have the whole collection now 
Um, it comes in two volumes and has uh, original art done by Jonathan M. Burton, who I think is the best, even more than Mark Simonetti. I think he might be my favorite. Um, and you can't really see inside, but the slipcase that has, uh, for those who are watching this, uh, you there's actually a Blood Raven illustration in here, and it's incredible. Uh, but this book, the the binding is just incredible. You have a hand holding a kraken. Oh, that's so cool! Oh, is it a pur- it's like a purple. Yes, and then you have a dragon. And that's like a gold. Yeah. Well, the dragon is spitting out the sun spear from Dorn. Isn't so that cool. incredible? And just some really amazing um, art in these books. So. Uh, I was very excited. I got Rise of the Dragon and this on the same day, and I was just like a kid in a candy store. Dude. I was, I was and so then you happy. had, to, and then you had to fly to Colorado for a work thing. So it's and like it you didn't sucked. even get to touch it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> <And> it <sucked. laughs> it's like it's like yeah. I want to. Um, I brought a carry on. Well, sir, your carry on is two hundred pounds. Yeah, it's just books. So. Yeah, it's uh, books I've already read. I'm going to read again on this plane. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a new format. Ah, oh, so so awesome. Okay. Um, so what we have today, I guess I should pull up my doc. Um, let me get this up here. You know, this is how it works. I always come super prepared, right? Because we have so many different topics we want to talk about. And it's like, oh yeah, let me get all these things. It has been so, a good year for us, hasn't it? As a song, oh, some fire fans. So much fun. There's yeah. so much going on right now. It really is. Okay. So what Jimmy and I are going to dive into today is our top five favorite moments from House of the Dragon season one. I don't know what he's picked. He doesn't know what I have picked. And we each have one that is our least favorite. And so I think we, when we get closer to our number one, we'll do our least favorite. So we have I no, we have no, idea. yeah, we have no idea what the other person's picked. So it's possible we will have the same moments on our <laughs> list. I'm assuming we probably will, right? So um, if one of us has it and the other person has it higher, we'll still sort of jump back and cover that again. Just as like, well, this is why I placed it higher. But uh, I don't want we don't want, I don't want to, re- you know, reveal where I have it placed until we get to that number. So. Cool. So, OK, Jimmy, so I will let you go first at your number and we'll obviously count down to, to number one. Yes. Or count up, depending on how you uh, look at it. So my... now, what is your number five? Number five is Rhaenyra being crowned queen, which we saw in the last episode. Um, Let me tell you what, when we started bringing this down, remember, I think we said, we'll do top 10. And then we said, well, top five will make it tough. And it was tough. I had a lot of honorable mentions on here and some of really small moments that like, uh, I feel like aren't that big and monumental, but I got to be honest when Rhaenyra is crowned, there's like a well of emotions that opened up for me, especially, you know, knowing that Viserys is no longer around and then, you know, everyone kneeling and then Rainey's standing in the back. I mean, it's just a really amazing moment. It was almost like a break from all the grief that we were experiencing from the fallout of Viserys' death. Um, and I just loved it. Yeah, that actually did not make my list, but it is it, it is an it is an excellent, yeah, it is an excellent moment and a very powerful scene. And I really do like how they did now that I'm I'm more I'm removed from it again. I really do like how the final two episodes, I mean, obviously there is some greens in the final episode, but it's really told to us through the perspective of, you know, Damon and Rhaenyra. So I really did like how they split those up to where this is really sort of like the greens episode. And this is really sort of the blacks episode. And to get that parallel was very cool. 
Yeah, I would agree. Uh, you know, I uh, wasn't sure how I felt about it. I mean, I, I liked it, but I was like, it was not the best way of going about it. But the longer I have sat on it, I also agree, um, especially because it kind of like takes off uh, a lot of the buildup from Viserys' death. Like how like it, it, it's pretty hard to top that moment. So the pacing of the last two episodes together kind of bridge that um, away from Viserys' death. And I think it helps out the season in, in retrospect as a whole. Okay. All right. So my number five, you probably have on your list. Um, and so I have it actually as Aegon's crowning. So not the full scene, just the Aegon, the ceremony of him walking up and getting and getting his crown. And the reason I had this made my top five, and it actually pushed out a lot of things that I really thought was going to. But as a fan, you know, as I could be like, this is my least favorite scene. Right. This is, this is this is like, what do you what's happening? I don't want this to happen, but it really is. It's one of those things where that's what made Game of Thrones so special was watching the other side win mm -hmm. and have these huge moments just really caused you to absolutely loathe and hate the other side. Like, especially in seasons one through four, anytime the Lannisters pull something off you're just sitting there and you're just like seething and anger and <laughs> hatred for them but that's what makes the show so good that's what really makes game of thrones special and it is and to be fair it is an absolutely awesome scene when he's walking in and all the swords are going through and then he's up there and he's got blackfire and he gets the crown and i love the way that they did the crowning ceremony where it was never actually focused on his face it's showing everyone around him mm. and it's like zooming in on their face and he's almost out of focus it was just a very visually awesome yeah. scene and i just loved you know the way they did it because you're just sitting there watching and you're just like oh my and i just hate like <laughs> these guys which yeah. is what you need and also what a big moment for Aegon. We see Aegon for the first time in his life feel accepted. And we see like that power wash over him. It's a very powerful moment. And I also think it's the best coronation that we could possibly have for Song of Ice and Fire. Really felt like it came alive. Um, I was a big fan and it did not make my list. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right, Jimmy. What is your, what is your number four? Number four is a scene that happens directly after the coronation or maybe during, you could say. And that's the mm -hmm. beast beneath the board with Rainey's Targaryen coming up on the Red Queen. Uh, I know that this did get a little bit of flack and people were debating on the logic of it all, but I have went through tireless hours online um, in videos on my channel and here defending it because I think it's a great scene and it makes my number four spot. I love Rainey's Targaryen, one of my favorite Targaryens, maybe my favorite Targaryen. But on top of that, I just loved the, the fact that we had seen Rainey's be so passive, go through so much uh, grief and trauma at this point to come up and then confront the greens that way. And then also, I think this scene was improved with the follow-up episode, the finale, whenever she says it was not my war to begin. Um, and it shows that Rainey's is still super smart. Um, so I, I was a big fan of this and it was, it was pretty damn epic. Yeah, I do have that on my list, but I have it higher so i will uh i will hold off but yes i uh agree with you but we will we will come back to it so so okay all right so uh, i guess then i'll bounce since i guess no my number four okay mm -hmm. so my number four actually is is kind of a small scene really it's it's only it's not very long and you could almost forget about it but i have 
episode one sort of opening scene of Rhaenyra just flying and over the Red Keep and landing and it's and it's you know blaring the Targaryen theme you know here with Daenerys and and everything and the reason I have this as making my top five beating out so many other like epic moments is Game of Thrones is back man I mean that's it was it's it was like we had waited for so long for this show and you know we were doing I was doing we were doing it live and everyone's there and everything and it's just it's just like we are back man Westeros is back and it was just so awesome to see and I think it's also great that this is how they started the show this is how they start the yeah. whole thing is no this is house of the dragon these are targaryens and you start off with a dragon i thought it was honestly like it's like one of the perfect uh, like perfect like opening scene to this to this show yeah the heavy lifting that the pilot did like that pilot was so important and had so much bias against it from season eight for it to deliver and you're right that opening scene is everything what a mood setter wow oh, yeah. <laughs> it is good it is a good one. It, it did not make my list, but I almost feel like it should have now that. And that's why I like this. I like that we're going right. in blind because I'm like, ah, you, should I have included uh, it? Should I know? Man. <laughs> I know, but that's the thing is there's so many, like there's so like, this is one I, I was, I was kind of, I was really sitting down thinking about it and I was like, man, you know, because there's all the big moments. Yeah. Especially, and it's more recency bias because we we're doing this right after the season and it's a week to week. It's not like a binge or anything, but it was just like, man, I really want to sit and think about like which moments just gotcha and this that was one of them yeah most certainly and and i think it might be one of the best pilots i've ever seen so oh yeah absolutely yeah uh okay uh, jimmy you're number three number three is a shout out to the first episode as well but it is when viserys reveals the prophecy of a song of ice and fire to rhaenyra um this could have went poorly i think because a lot of people are fresh wounds from season eight uh but i knew that when they announced the show that they were somehow going to connect it to the main show, it's the biggest money-making show of all time. Why wouldn't they? And I actually really liked it. I like that Ryan Condell ran with the whole prophecy idea from Aegon and added this into the show. It is a Ryan Condell concept. Um, and I liked it. I liked it a lot. I think it adds a new weight to the monarchy. And also the acting in that scene was pretty amazing. And it kind of shows that Rhaenyra um, has to step up to the occasion. This is not just uh, you know a birthright or whether or not she would be named heir, but there's a lot more behind it. And it gives a lot of um, complexity to Viserys and the decisions that he makes from this point forward. And we get to see that revealed to Rhaenyra, who obviously is a character that I uh, love very much. So really, really like this scene. And I think it the execution of it could have went poorly, but I thought it was really well done. And it was a great end to that first episode. Yeah, this, uh, this was one that actually was on my list and it got, I pushed it off. But uh, I 100% agree. And I think over the course of the whole season, the Song of Ice and Fire being this uh, plot device and, and mover of, of the whole story is super awesome. And I did love, really love that that's how they finished episode one, because I think that was a great way to, to finish it, where it's like, you know, this ties into Game of Thrones and everyone's watching and Twitter's, you know, going nuts and everyone's back into game of thrones so to end it with this tie into the main series i think was great yeah i would agree i i i know uh like i said i know some people don't like to be reminded of season eight but we have to be realistic in the fact that they were going to connect it to their number one grossing show of all time so if they were going to do it i think this was the way and i loved it yeah 
Okay, uh, my number three, which you might you might still have in your list. We still have a few left here. I have um, he can keep his tongue. Oh, I didn't. I did not put this on there, but it was it was close. It's on the honorable mentions for me. Yeah, um, I think the reason I just really liked this scene was it was just so that that episode in the first place, like it's the Viserys episode and you're focusing on him being old. Right. And you just have the awesome scene, um, which I'm sure we'll both probably get to as, uh, on our list of Viserys walking in. And it's just so cool and so epic. And then the rest of the episode is just becomes become a little somber as we know Viserys isn't long for this world. So it was in one way really like the big action moment of that episode. But it was all it's also just like such Damon's character to have this, and it just sort of catches you off guard. It was, you know, some people argue will shock value or whatever, but it was like that's the kind that is like Game of Thrones. That's Game of Thrones, man. That's how it how it happens. One minute you're there and the next you're dead. So yeah. uh, I thought it was awesome. And I think it was a really good mood setter to get everyone even more so on Damon's side. Yeah. And also uh, it, it's, it's just the spectacle of it. You know, I, I, I know some people push back on that, but at the end of the day, like the, the show has to be entertaining. And if that wasn't a draw dropping uh, jaw dropping moment for me and also for Vayman, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, it, it delivered for me and it was a, one of the big, Oh snap moments in, in the season. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you're number two, Jimmy, right? You no, did your number yeah. two. And I really sat down folks and I really tried to not have recency bias, but I, when I thought about the, not just the story beats, but the execution of the scene and the cinematography, the acting and the music and everything, Luke's death in the finale with Amon and Vagar and Arax going to war and, and them not listening. And then the biggest moment of all for this, not just kicking off the war, but the fact that the dragons do have some agency. I loved everything about this. Uh, and the scene itself is just incredible. The silhouette of Vagar over top uh, truly felt like a Godzilla movie. Um, even whenever Luke lands, and we we just see Vagar just looking like a mountain. I mean, I, I don't know. Everything about Luke's death scene, the last 15 minutes of the finale, were chilling, and I have not stopped thinking about it since it happened. So I had to give it my number two spot. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm almost 100% certain that my number two spot is your number one spot. Uh, so I think we can wait to talk about that as well as my number one. So let's dive into our least favorite moments. And I guess I'll go since I didn't I didn't do my number two because I'm, right. I'm 100% certain it's your number one. And if it's not, I guess we'll go back. So uh, we just play it by ear here. So my least favorite moment in the season I have as Masaria talking to anyone. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, Masaria talking, Masaria in episode nine talking to Otto Hightower. Uh, and I know a lot of people are criticizing her accent and stuff like that. I guess I didn't really have uh, a lot of issue with that. I guess the for me, my problem with that scene is one, it just doesn't, she's saying, you know, the people give you the power is mm -hmm. what she's trying to say. So in, in some sense, you could make an argument. It's sort of a throwback to 
a few moments in Game of Thrones, right? Like in season one, you have Robert talking about how we need to worry about the Dothraki army. It's one army. And I thought that's just such a great scene in Game of Thrones. And then also you have Cersei and Peter Baelish talking about power. You know, power is power, which is another great scene. Doesn't happen in the books. But at that point, we had already seen Baelish climbing the ladder. Mm-hmm. So it felt like, ooh, he's now overstepping as opposed to this character who we've seen with Masaria in three episodes. And there's also the time jump. And we also at that point hadn't seen her. The book readers, we know she's important. But casual viewers are like, who is this again? Right? Oh, wait, yeah. she's the she's just the girl that was with Damon in those first two episodes. Like they don't know, oh, that she actually runs this brothel and she's a whisper. You know, like it just wasn't the same. It just didn't have the same. I mean, you do see her, you see the the woman go to tell her that that King Viserys uh mm-hmm. is is dead, but okay, we we don't we still don't know why she's important or why she's powerful to the to the casual viewer. You just know, oh, okay, they just went and told that lady again. So I just felt like the scene with the time jump and you only saw her the first few times. It just didn't hit, I think, as hard as they wanted. They wanted it to. And then, of course, also then it's you're trying to make this play that the people are the ones who are the who give you the power. And then later in that episode, all the people die because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. So I just really, you know, didn't feel like the scene. If I have to criticize one scene, that to me is the one I don't think hit as well as they wanted it. Or it just didn't to the audience. It was just didn't hit as well as they wanted it to. Yeah, I've kind of liked a little bit of the subtlety with Masaria. Um, it definitely isn't super on the nose. Like whenever uh, someone runs to her, which is obviously we find out, I think it's Talia or Tanya. I can't remember the uh, the queen's handmaid runs and tells about the dinner, right? The big, hey, my cousins are very strong gimmick, right? Um, right. So it wasn't really on the nose with that. And I, I do think they have a lot of work to do to put her over as a character in the future seasons. Uh, I figured that this would probably be one of the bigger changes from what we get in fire and blood, which is, you know, very few and sparing with most details when it comes to her. Um, it was a little jarring, I think to see her battling with Otto without the proper kind of backing to this. Right. I do think, and I think we both can agree that this could uh, be building up to something that comes out in the future. Uh, but I would agree. Uh, my least favorite thing, the number one thing I have, I have I technically have two because the one isn't a scene and mine is Masaria's accent. I think it's horrendous. I, I, yeah. I <laughs> cringe when she's on. I like the character. I just hate the accent and I don't care if it doesn't make sense. I would be fine if she just changed the accent in season two. Like I hope someone right. pulls aside the showrunners and go, hey, have her stop that because <laughs> it's not good. Because it is it is a choice too. Yeah, because she's a great yeah. actress, by the way. She, I, I've seen her in other things, and people were showing me clips. She's a fantastic actress. She does not need this ridiculous accent that is, I mean, pretty bad, in my opinion. Yeah, I think I think the goal is to try to make it to try and make it exotic. It also didn't it didn't seem as awkward in the first two episodes as it did as it when did she talks here. more and more, it gets worse. Um, it's just not. I don't like it. But if I had to pick a, a moment in the show that that I did not care for it's not the fact that i didn't like the plot beats i actually really like the ending plot beats of these things but i think that they needed more time and that is the end of episode six where we see lena burned by vagar and where we see laris kill his family in harrenhal mm-hmm. i wish that would have been two episodes um 
I was reserving judgment on that. I, I said when we did our live reaction, I said, yeah, this feels a little rushed, but like, we'll see what the season entails. But I think about this, like what you just said, the conversation with Masari and Otto, you know, that's some time that could have been maybe given to Harwin Strong or Lena. Yeah, and, it, you know, so didn't have I, enough con it didn't have enough context to really. And it's a huge moment. I mean, it's it's a really big and impactful moment. I think Lena getting agency to decide the way her life ends is is really important to the story. And also, I hate the fact that she mysteriously just escapes the birthing bed and gets to Vagar when everyone's like, where'd she go? <laughs> and it's like, right. it's a bit Hollywood. Uh, and there are going to be liberties like that taken with any TV show almost. Um, but I would say that was probably my least favorite part of the show. Not the actual plot beats, but the fact that it was a little bit rushed. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, let's get to our number ones. I'm pretty sure my number two is your number one. So yes. I'll let you let you go here. King Viserys walk to the throne. The whole thing, the the crown falling, Damon putting on his head, the announcement, King of the Andals, all of the seven king. I mean, I maybe might be my favorite Westerosi TV moment of all time. I, yeah. it's perfect. The the music, it's perfect. It's the best part. And of it totally, thing. and it totally changes the way we view oh. him as a as a character. And the best part about it is that George Martin says it's better than his character in the books. <laughs> so George is giving George is like giving it his blessing because in the books, Viserys com comes across as like just sort of an average king who lets the realm realm fall up. fall into civil war. Yeah, and. He, he's so, so much more of a complex character. And for this to be his final stand, and it's not some grandioso battle or any of that. It's simply a man protecting his daughter and doing his duty as king. And there's something about the thematic value of someone doing the best for where they are at. And Viserys is at the end of his life and makes a massive impact on those that will remain living. I think it's just like one of the most gorgeously executed. I... I I love it. I'm getting chills just talking about it. I love no, it, it so yeah. much. Yeah. And I had it as my number two and it's an absolutely fantastic, just amazing scene because the, the Viserys whole character, it, there was, there was, there was stuff. The buildup to it as well was also really cool because Viserys choosing, I want to dine with my family tonight. Mm. And the, I don't, you know, he throws away the milk of the poppy. Let's right. Go. So that he so that and then he he walks in right as Rhaenyra is getting ready to defend mm. herself in this in this claim. And he uh, no, he comes in and lays oh. and and lays down the law. It is an absolutely amazing scene. And give an Emmy to the King's Guard who announces him into the room because the bass in his voice. I was <laughs> dude, I mean, I was screaming at my television. Epic. Yeah. It, no, it's it is an it is an absolutely amazing scene and one of the best in all of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, OK, so for mine, for anybody who's been paying attention, I said earlier there was one I hadn't touched on yet. And I, I will wait because I have it a much higher. And my number one is the beast beneath the boards. Yeah, it has. So, I mean, you can for the people who don't like it, you know, you can say you're just picking the shock value that doesn't happen in the books, all that stuff. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because it was hinted at multiple times in the prophecies of Helena Targaryen. So I think that it will actually help her character going forward because now you're going to pay a lot more attention to her. And there's a lot that happens with her character that I'm curious to see 
uh, how it goes with a lot more of her prophecies that she will have. Mm-hmm. And I think this being one of them is like, you really should pay attention to her. So in, in, in one way, it sort of helps Helena Targaryen and as, help establish, helps establish her character. It also is, is like, it's shock value, but it's shock value done in the right way. It's an awesome scene. And it has all of the casual fans talking about it. like the people that the casual fans that I know that don't even know I run a Game of Thrones podcast or anything. <laughs> and you're just talking about, oh, you know, like, what are you watching? And there's stuff like that. You know, like, wow. And that lady comes out on the dragon. Like, that was awesome. And that's what you need. That's like what you this. Remember, there's so much that went into. Is this show even going to succeed? Right. Yeah. Is House of the Dragon even going to succeed with the stigma of the final season of Game of Thrones? Also, successor sequel shows. We talk about it more often than not fail hard very 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 hard i mean so many of some of the biggest shows in the history of television that have tried to have a successor show falls so fast on on its face so this show is not only just oh hey a sequel to game of thrones it's like potentially the rest of westeros on television right Mm -hmm. you have like a merger happening so there's like a lot of money and a lot of things and a lot of six a lot of just big moving parts in the Hollywood industry and all this stuff hinging on this show. And to have a moment like that where Twitter's talking about it and everybody's like, Oh my God, this is so awesome. And to showcase like a dragon being super Epic in that moment. Yeah. It was so awesome. Yeah. And, and I actually love the fact that Rainey's does this decision and it ends up, uh, it, it makes us raise the question of, well, what about all these small folk that were killed? And some people are saying, traitors. look, they, they didn't even think about it. Yeah, traitors. They were there. <laughs> but a lot of people are saying they didn't even think about it. It's like, no, I, I think they did think about it. And I think that it is a part of the critique on monarchy. It's also the supremacy of my bloodline being worth more than these peasants. I think that plays into it. And we like to take sides. It's fun to be tribal. But at the end of the day, I mean, uh, most of these people in this ruling class are terrible human beings. Um, oh, yeah. And, yeah, and th- that's just something we kind of accept in Westeros. And uh, people, you know, I can't believe they didn't think about the small people. Well, let's just wait and see what happens. Let's see what happens later in the store. Maybe the the, the peasantry or the peasants of of uh, King's Landing are a character in this story too. Uh, as a whole, they are a character, and we should definitely take note of that and put it in the back of our minds. But a lot of people are pointing at that as being a critique of the scene. But I, I actually disagree completely. Uh, I think that it is an intentional part of the scene and it is something that we should judge against Rainey's for sure. Yeah. Um, but we can still be fired up about it because, you know, team black, let's go. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, at the same time though, she is still, you can see she is still sort of acting for herself a little bit because, which is great because you right. need that because, you know, it's what, what I've said it before, what made game of Thrones so special was we didn't know the ending and everyone was picking sides because in theory your team could win right, right. it's like we, we saw the right. show where you're killing all the all your favorite characters it's like the lannisters could win the whole deal yeah right it, and it could just be some story about this is you know how life works and all this stuff. we didn't know so people were like team lannister all the way right so here i think it's good to have some of these third parties wild cards right that exist to, to sort because you need that you need that otherwise it's just really like team black 
yes. right? Versus versus the terrible high towers and everything. Not, not to mention that the chess piece of the Valerians are very important, um, especially Huge. with the Lannister fleet. I thought that the finale of the, uh, of the season really put Corliss over and Rhaenys is seen following up her episode nine moment where was excellent. And, you know, watching her not kneel to Rhaenyra until she could see that she was actually ready to be queen and that she was going to be the one that she wanted to back. Really powerful. And Corliss walking into the room and saying, what's the lay of the land? Let's go. Let's figure this out. This is yeah. what I can provide. I mean, uh, I, I think all the pieces were put in place very, very well. And you can't do that and have that that feeling of, of importance without Rainey's having her moment of finally having agency in the show and not having just terrible things done to her. Um, and you know, some peasants lost their lives that day, but um, unfortunately that is how the they Royals, were traitors. They were traitors. All right. They were, they, they were there. They know that everyone swore fealty to Rhaenyra. Okay. <laughs> And then everyone's back in the wrong side. So I mean, it was kind of funny how they got ushered in there. And like, even during the coronation, you could feel like this awkwardness where like, what are we doing here? Are we supposed to clap Uh, now? And they're like, right. Oh, hell yeah. He's got the crown on whatever. Like we're here. At least it's something else other than getting fleas. You know? And how dumb, how dumb, like when Otto's standing up there, he's like, open the doors. (laughs) (laughs) OSHA is going to have a field day with us. Seriously. Uh, okay all right well let's uh do we have a few quick honorable mentions here that we can just sort of fire off some what were, did you have any that you wanted to put on your list that didn't oh, make yeah. it yeah um the brackens and the blackwoods moment oh, yeah. I, I mean if, if you were talking about petty stuff i thought that was just excellent i love the pink dread like the the dragon tamers mm-hmm. uh, the, um, like the boys in the pit i love that um i honestly i, think, I, I like the i i the crab feeder there's a lot of stuff from that episode that almost that almost made my list. I I mean honestly, dude, when Allison walks into Rhaenyra's dinner for her wedding announcement with Lenor, mm-hmm. when she walks in in the green dress, or what about even the Valerians showing up to that dinner? I mean, that dinner scene right. was fantastic. And I know it's kind of an awkward scene, but, but given the importance, given the importance of it, of telling her father off. And then mm-hmm. immediately going to talk to Loras and having to still play the Game of Thrones with, you know, his feet <laughs> fetish. Listen, we're dominating uh, the feet fetish. We are dominating. The, I, I posted a picture in our in our Facebook group and on Twitter. Uh, yeah, once we posted that video, now the top trending search item for our podcast is now Sir Loras and feet. So, well, I guess that's where, that's where <laughs> we got to play to our strengths. We got to play to our strengths here. So. Uh, but still, I mean, it was just kind of like a pa- it's a powerful scene because of mm-hmm. what the scene that the whole thing uh, together and another scene. I mean, God, so many scenes of Viserys. Right. But one that really stuck out to me is when. Damon comes back and he and da- after he brings him the crown and Damon and Viserys are on good terms and they're hanging out and Allison's like, oh, you know, there's like an art gallery in town we can go see. And Viserys is like, oh, yeah, like we really want to go do that. Like it just blows her <laughs> up because that is like that's like his character. That's what you know, he doesn't he doesn't really care about Allison like at all. Right. He calls her Emma at one point. I mean, oh. And she has to like live through that. So you get her side of it too. But I, I don't know why that scene too. just the, that's like just so much of like the good political drama richness of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Very subtle in like a small moment that is easily, easily forgettable. 
Um, and there's also some foreshadowing for stuff that's going to happen in uh, the final season. And that was in episode four. And we won't talk about it anymore because we're going to keep it spoiler free here on the podcast. But uh, we're going to come back to season one a bunch. And as we keep going through this show and I think as a whole, this has an opportunity to be a masterpiece of a television show. So I'm really, really excited. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's going to be absolutely amazing. So, okay. With that, let's move on to another just quick topic. This is not a game of Thrones topic, although it could be because there are rumors about uh, this actor's potential (laughs) may have a potential role. Yeah. In, a song of ice and fire. And uh, now it seems he's got a big contract. I'm guessing with Warner brothers again, because they've had, he's had a rocky relationship with them in the past 10 years, which is crazy uh, considering the general lack of content produced that you think would be the case. But uh, Henry Cavill stepping down as the witcher after this season. Yeah. And uh, again, this is, isn't Game of Thrones related, but I still just wanted to talk about it a little bit because Jimmy and I cover fantasy and right. I cover video games. He covers fantasy books. So, hey, it works out perfect because we talked about The Witcher. Man, mm-hmm. uh, is that show dead? Yeah. So for me, the show is uh, I Liam Hemsworth. It's not his fault. And I don't envy him. I mean, I'm sure he's getting paid the bag, but like, I, I, you know, good for him on that regard. But no one stepping into this role could really fill the shoes of Geralt of Rivia um, quite the way that we had with Henry Cavill. And I think that he was the glue to the show, like even when the show because I like the show, I think it's good. I don't necessarily think it's phenomenal. And right. now with these bigger shows coming out, you know, and, you know, we cover House of the Dragon, but a lot of people do like Rings of Power as well. Right. So these are bigger shows. Uh, Wheel of Time season two, hopefully it's going to have some big improvements. So Witcher is like in this really weird spot where it's like the fun fantasy show to watch. Like you have the monster of the week. Sometimes it's it's a good time. But Henry was holding the show together. And without him, I, I can tell you even now, I'm not as interested in watching season three. Oh, I'll still watch. I'll, I'll definitely going to watch, watch it. I'm going to watch it, but I'm not season- as hyped. Right, like season two was much better than season one, even though season two gets a little further away from the books, which I'm fine with because the games are their their own thing. And Witcher 3 is like one of the greatest games ever made, right? They're remaking Witcher 1. They just announced it. Uh, so it was like, man, this week we thought we were getting is like, oh, hey, they're remaking Witcher 1. Season 1, this is going to be awesome. And it's like great Witcher news this week and then terrible Witcher news this, this week. So yeah, yeah uh, totally sucks. But... I almost wonder if he's actually, man, you know, if this is just a missed opportunity because Netflix is, has one season left of Stranger Things. And once that's over, they don't really have their like big mega number one. I mean, Stranger Things is like Game of Thrones, Mandalorian. I guess, Mm -hmm. you, you know, you can argue Rings of Power. It is that level of show for them. Yeah, the boys, right? I guess that's another huge show for Amazon. I guess you, you know, it's it's on that level of like the best shows of the year. So it's kind of felt like maybe maybe The Witcher is going to be that next thing. But yeah, Henry Cavill stepping down after this final year, and then yeah, like if you told me it was Chris Hemsworth, right? <laughs> you know, even it's then, like, oh, it, it's like okay, I guess I could see it because he's Thor, and now he's going to play that. No, 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 it's his brother. 
Uh, and Cavill, um, he's a big fan of the Witcher books, and apparently he had a lot of falling out with the producers of the show whenever they started to kind of like veer away and, and dumb down Garrett a bit. Like he fought for more dialogue in season one, supposedly. So this is a guy who like cared about the lore and cared about the show and cares about the fandom. And no matter who steps into that role, it's hard to imagine, you know, a Hollywood actor being that nerdy <laughs> in a right. way, right? So it hurts it. But my my invitation, and Henry, if you're listening, I know you're a big fan of the show. Um, we need we, a, we need an egg on the conquer. Yes. We need an egg on the conquer, whether it's for a flashback in House of the Dragon. Maybe, maybe they do a movie of Aegon the Conqueror. I don't know. Right. But tell me that Henry wouldn't make a perfect Targaryen. Oh my god. Or a perfect Craig and Stark, if he wants to be in House of the Dragon, or if he wants to be in a Robert Baratheon, a young Robert Baratheon, he, can, he would be like, he can do it. He can do whatever he wants. My guess, though, my guess, though, is the rumors are speculating that now he's his 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 agent, who, by the way, has to be the single worst agent in the history of Hollywood. OK, because <laughs> this guy, this agent is the one who made him in the first Justice League movie. Right. Because they did all the shooting and everything. I guess technically, hey, that movie was like done. And then they had to go do some reshoots. That was like old Warner Brothers. AT&T Warner Brothers. Um, and then remember the, the first Justice League came out and you had the weird CG, CGI, like no mustache or whatever. <laughs> so that was actually like the last movie he acted in. It was like 2017 or whatever when that movie came out because he signed. Then he signed. It was for Mission Impossible was the deal. He had to keep this mustache for Mission Impossible. And that could just be Tom Cruise being like, I know how to move stuff in Hollywood. And after seeing Top Gun Maverick and everything, Tom Cruise can do whatever he wants. So he's, you know. But then he signs this contract with Netflix where it's like you're not allowed to act in literally anything but The Witcher. Yeah, very bizarre. The dump, like what for like two years or whatever. So I don't know really what happened there, but that's totally dumb because the only other thing he was in was Zack Snyder's Justice League, which is just using re mm -hmm. all you just used all already shot footage. Um, but seems like hey, The Rock was the one who said he'd been fighting for six years to get him because they've had because Superman right has appeared in a couple DC product projects. But he's been silhouetted out or like they don't show his face because mm -hmm. um, like technically Superman was in Shazam and in Peacemaker. But you don't see Henry Cavill. You just see this like silhouette or somebody playing Superman. But he, uh, I guess, spoiler, uh, it's kind of all over the Internet. And to be fair, The Rock has been talking about it for like the past like three weeks before the movie yeah. came out is that he actually shows up as like the end credit scene in this. So it seems like we're trading Geralt of Rivia for superman but at the same time that now means that he's going to be locked in here to warner brothers which means it's easy to do that crossover right and from you what see, i understand like, he's a fan of a song of ice and fire oh he would have to be so who yeah knows? who knows i would welcome Maybe. him with open arms you and i've talked about the possibility of really you could do an Aegon's conquest as a movie I think it'd be better as a movie with the, when you really look at it and you look at the events, I think it'd be better as a, a big budget. It could be two and a half, three and a half hour movie. Um, you know, uh, some people will say, what is it? Rain of fire. Is that the movie from back in the day? Some people say that is Aegon's conquest, which is kind of funny. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. It's from like 2008 yeah, yeah. or something. I know. Yeah. 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 I don't know what we were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, maybe, I mean, Hey, if the Sopranos can get a movie, 
that was kind of mediocre. Yeah. Then, <laughs> right? I mean, then yeah. Game of Thrones definitely. HBO is willing to say, hey, we can have our stuff go be in a movie. Yeah. And hopefully better than that. Hopefully. Yeah, the Sopranos movie was kind of... I, I I just watched it. After plotting through the whole thing, it was, it was kind of okay. It wasn't... Yeah. I mean, the movie itself was just like... And then they had some weird casting choices. It was just weird. Yeah, I would hope that they would be able to execute an Aegon movie a little bit better. It would definitely be a spectacle, though. Going to see that in IMAX? Are you kidding me? Oh, that could be so, so, so... That movie would make... that That'd be a billion-dollar movie. The Black Dread. Written Henry on his back. I mean, come on. Come on. So sweet. Give it to me. <laughs> Give it to me. And the idea of Henry Cavill having two wives makes perfect sense. Uh, every, <laughs> like, like that's going to be like the first time that like the incest and like multiple wives, like nobody questions it. They're just like, oh, yeah. He's just uh, being a Chad. Just being yeah, a giga Chad. Uh, awesome. All right, guys. Well, hey, thank you guys so much as always for watching, for listening, for supporting us. Everything you guys do, we very much appreciate all of it. And it's been so much fun covering House of the Dragon this season, as well as all the stuff we will have coming in the future. I do also want to get, and I might just put it on Patreon. Um, haven't looked at the schedule just yet, but I want to do like a, a Zoom hangout for like our, those top tier bannermen. Um, yeah. I'm tentatively actually even thinking of maybe perhaps like this Saturday just because uh, I know I have it open or even like next Sunday, the 6th, November the 6th or something mm -hmm. and doing that and getting some of your guys thoughts and what you guys thought about that. So, uh, so for those of you guys who are patrons and stuff like that, just stay tuned to keep a lookout on, on the Patreon page. I'll, I'll, I'll post something about that. Uh, or if you're looking to become one, obviously you can hit that up as well. So awesome. All right, guys. Well, Hey, with that, as always, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And remember that winter is coming.